three Fridays ago, <clears throat> we had a kid's birthday party at our house and I had red covered frankfurters for dinner. You know, those mini boiled sausages. Um, who knows what's actually in them? Don't know whether it's pork, beef, sawdust, but they were absolutely delicious. I enjoyed them far more than I ever expected. And in total contrast, last Friday, I had a quite expensive steak in a restaurant in the city. And I enjoyed it far less than I had thought. And if you ask me right now, or perhaps later on this afternoon, you know, which would I prefer? Which would I choose? I'm actually ashamed to say that I think I'd choose the Frankfurters over the steak. I'd be tempted to choose something that is clearly culinarily inferior over what was just delicious in that moment. And this is something of what we see in the book of Colossians. The Colossians are being tempted by the religious version of the Frankfurters. They're being tempted, in fact, Paul says, in fact, they're being held captive or taken captive by something inferior to Christ. A teaching has crept into this church that, that has this kind of cheap and dirty appeal, but it lacks any nourishment. What we saw last week uh, as we looked at the early, these earlier verses in chapter 2 was that this false teaching has an appeal, is actually grabbing people only because their view of Christ is partial. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that there's nothing partial about your faith because Christ is not just something like God or a little bit like God or some percentage of God. No, in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. So if you have a partial view of Jesus, you have a partial view of your faith and that creates this opportunity for this false teaching to come in. And today Paul is going to show us in some detail how this false teaching doesn't work, how it's riddled with problems and how this teaching does not help anyone because it cannot do what only Christ can do. Now in um, Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 to 23 we see a particular pattern, Paul lays it out in quite a structured way. You'll see um, a bit of an outline there behind me that gives you a sense of this pattern. Then there's, I think, really three key things that Paul is saying here. Firstly, he's saying don't substitute the transitory for the substantial. And, and what he does is, is he gives this a particular structure. You'll see it's a structure of exhortation, issue, and then evaluation. So, for example, in this first one in uh, verse 16, there's a command there, there's an exhortation. Paul is urging them in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you, right? That's the exhortation. And then the second, um, uh, for this, the second approach in this format is he'll outline the issues. There in chapter 16, um, in verse 16b, he talks about the diets and the days, and then in the next verse, he'll evaluate it all saying that these are a shadow of things to come. He'll do this again. You see in the next slide, in, in his second area, don't substitute the speculative for the vital. 
There's an exhortation. He'll outline the issues and then he'll evaluate them. And then thirdly, uh, in his third section, don't substitute the impressive for the effective, you'll see he'll exhort them, give them a command, this, you know, kind of in a form of question there in verse 20. He'll outline the issues and then he'll evaluate. So firstly, don't substitute the transitory for the substantial. It seems that there were some who were condemning these Colossian Christians. Perhaps they felt inferior because of what they weren't doing. And they were allowing what purported to be mature Christians, Christians of great knowledge, Christians of great experience, to make them feel small and inferior. Verse 16, here is um, what Paul is saying. Don't let this happen. Don't feel small and inferior as a Christian. Why were they feeling small and inferior? Because of the issues there in verse 16b. The issues were around the days that were observed and particular diets. So firstly, the diets. There is a a clear sense of a Jewish element here in that these mature, experienced Christians, so-called, at least in their mind, were encouraging both probably Gentile and Jewish believers to go back to the Old Testament dietary laws. And this is different from watching what you eat. Uh, they're not, you know, health experts wanting the Colossians to cut out carbohydrates. These are these are food laws. These, the, sorry, are food laws not simply about health. They're actually very emotional issues in the New Testament. They're one, one of the kind of the, the most emotive issues in the New Testament for the division of a church is in the food laws. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in Romans chapter 14. The division that had entered the Roman church in the Corinthian church and also in this church in Colossae. Because many of the first Christians were Jewish. And those Jewish believers had followed for generation after generation these food laws, restricting certain things. And some Jews would have died before they were willing to violate these food laws. But with the coming of Christ, these food laws had been set aside. And we see this in Acts chapter 10. Um, Peter needs Jesus himself to appear to him to convince him of this. Peter is highly reluctant to shift from a Jewish way of thinking when it comes to food. Jesus tells him, tells him, rise, kill and eat. All these foods are clean. And Peter was resistant to this because of the massive cultural and religious weight that was placed on what you ate. Now, these Christians in Colossae are being forced, it would seem, to take on this Old Testament way of thinking. And it's not just what they eat, it's also around uh, the days, special days. Special days were a big theme in Judaism. Uh, Sabbath was a weekly observance, uh, monthly observance like a new moon. We see this in Isaiah chapter 1. And there were also annual feasts. And so it would seem these false teachers were saying, yes, you've got to 
eat these things in line with the Old Testament law and to be faithful, you must observe these special days. What does Paul say? Well, Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 14 that the stronger Christian views all days alike and that, as Jesus declared, all fit foods are clean. So they're the issues, diet and days. And here's Paul's evaluation in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See, these diets and these days, they point to something. They point to Christ. So you don't substitute what's temporal, what's just for a moment. You don't substitute that for what's substantial. You don't substitute the sign for the reality. It's like being on a long holiday. You know, you're going along the freeway and there's those signs that indicate food, fuel, bed, toilet. And, you know, it's a long trip. And, you know, you're a couple of kilometres outside of the town for there in the town is everything that you need. Well, you don't stop five kilometres outside of the town next to the sign hoping to be refuelled to eat and to sleep or to go to the toilet. It's not the sign that's important. It's what the sign points to. The food laws, the days of festival, they were the shadow, they were the sign, but the reality is there. You don't camp out five kilometres from the town when uh, the reality is there, a solid reality. And so Paul is saying, don't be fixated on these shadows. Don't despise these shadows. They had their place. The sign has a place, but when the reality is there, the sign is not as important. And we see throughout the book of Colossians, there are a lot of signs. There are a lot of shadows. Uh, The language of redemption back in chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, is the language of the exodus. And in fact, in Paul's mind, there's a new exodus. There's a new freedom that the people of God have been given. Exodus language is being used to describe not Israel coming out of Egypt, but Christians coming out of sin and darkness. In chapter 1, verse 12, it speaks about an inheritance. The promised land was the inheritance in the Old Testament, but that is just the shadow. Because Christians don't just inherit a patch of land in Christ, Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth, that they will inherit indeed eternal life, redemption, inheritance. Christ is also the temple. In him is the presence of God. We saw that last week. All the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. He is our inheritance. He is our redemption. He is our temple. These diets and these days are the pointers to the substance. But in Jesus, we have that solid reality. And yet, these um, Christians are being pressured to turn from that reality back to the sign. And I guess it's because people don't like change. I really don't like the idea of driving an electric car. I'm quite resistant to it. It doesn't feel right to me. No doubt, 
in 20 years, perhaps, I'll be driving an electric car. Henry Ford went to the bank and asked for a loan to set up the Ford Manufacturing Company. He was told, horses are here to stay. We don't like change, but the Apostle Paul is saying a change has happened. A, a, a spiritual change has happened. So don't substitute the transitory for the substantial. Don't substitute what feels religious, special diet and a special day, for Christ. Throughout Christian history, this is what Christians have done. This is not just an issue for the first century. It's an issue for Christians throughout the ages. Because there is a sense in which if we can just set up some rules, then, and if we can just quantify and measure spirituality, it has an appeal. Um, we like that because it gives a sense of progress. And human nature thrives on religious duty. It's, it's a lot easier to follow a ritual than to love in a costly way. And yet this has its downsides. It's not just that it takes us away from Christ, it does, but it brings a judgmentalism. Don't, ju don't let others judge. There no doubt was a, a dynamic where, where each other in this church were looking at one another, either seeing themselves as superior and others as inferior, or seeing themselves as inferior and others as superior. It shrivels the soul. And when you are with people who are simply looking at Christian maturity by what you do and what you don't do, by particular rituals, by what you eat and what you don't eat, then you are with people who are joyless because it's, it's a shallow form of self-righteousness that doesn't actually deal with the heart of our issues. Diet and particular days do not deal with jealousy, gossip or slander. Don't substitute the transitory for the substantial. Secondly, don't substitute the speculative for the vital. This is what Paul says in verse 18. Don't, uh, sorry, verse 18. He's concerned that they not be disqualified for the prize. The language is a little different from don't let people judge you um, back in verse 16. But the issue here is there in verse 18 uh, where it says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. It seems as though there was a preoccupation that had crept into this church with angels. And we know from the ancient world that angels were associated with protection. Um, but here it's moved past protection to a worship. There are angels, and angels do worship. But angels are not to be worshipped to detract us from Christ. It would seem that some in the church here have these kinds of visions, these kinds of spiritual encounters that are captivating for these Christians. I don't know if um, Netflix is, is 
is full of documentaries of people encountering uh, God or claiming spiritual insight. There's so many people who jump on that crazy train of spiritual vision, of spiritual insight. But here, the apostle is concerned that that kind of uh, that kind of way of thinking actually doesn't promote trust in the Lord Jesus. In fact, what it does is it leads to an arrogance, a kind of conceit. Because if someone has had this superior spiritual experience, well, then who are you? Who are you to say what's right and wrong if you haven't had this kind of experience? Their experience is then weaponized against the ordinary. And these people become puffed up. They become inflated and proud. And so one of the marks of these false teachers is that they exalt themselves. But what Paul says here is don't substitute what is speculative for what is vital. What is vital? Well, verse 19, Christ, who is the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews as it grows, as God causes it to grow. The whole church, Paul is saying, our church, the universal church, the church of all ages, the whole church is nourished by the one Christ. And our spiritual growth comes from our union with Christ through faith. And as we hold fast to him, we're connected with spiritual experience. We're connected with the spiritual source. And it might not be as spectacular as a vision of some angel, as some encounter that takes us to other worlds. But in Jesus' mind, this is exactly what we need to do. Jesus says in John chapter 15, simply this, to abide in me, to remain with me. It's not very spectacular. It's not very flashy. It's not particularly, it doesn't sound kind of spiritual in the way that a vision of angels or another world might. But this is how we grow. We stay with Jesus. We keep holding on to him. We don't need angels. We don't need a ritual. We don't need a vision when we have Jesus in his word. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote the book, The Screwtape Letters, which I think was a book that the women read some time ago. And in that book, uh, there is a demon named Screwtape and he writes to his apprentice, Wormwood, how to tempt Christians from practising uh, real Christianity. And this is what he writes. He says, Dear Wormwood, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind of Christianity and if they must be Christians... Let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian colouring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. We as Christians can be tempted from the same old thing. 
from trusting in Jesus, from abiding with him. We are tempted as much as those early Christians by the spectacular, by the immediate, by the attractive. But here Paul is encouraging us to keep trusting in Jesus. And thirdly, Paul's warning to these Colossians is don't substitute the impressive for the effective in verses 20 to 23. His exhortation there is in verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Paul is saying, you have died with this old order. And in fact, next week we'll see in chapter 3 that you've died with this old order and you've been raised to this new creation. So why are you letting this old order control you? Many people lived in fear of the spirit world uh, in the first century. And throughout the ages we have seen this. When it says basic principles, it's probably referring to spiritual principle uh, spirits here um, demons and alike and it could be that these false teachers are trying to sell these Colossian Christians a way of conquering them a way of protecting them um, a way of overcoming them but Paul is reminding these Christians that you, you don't need something special to overcome these basic spiritual realities They've been conquered in the Lord Jesus. Have a look back in verse 15. The Lord Jesus has conquered them. He's nailed them to the cross. So why make up these rules or why follow these rules? These kinds of rules that, you know, purport to protect you from them. These kinds of rules that kind of appear spiritual. What are the rules? Well, they're there in verse 21. Don't handle, don't taste don't touch again it could be dietary here humans have long been impressed by dramatic acts of self-denial in a search for god it you know it seems really spiritual if you can go a lot you know days weeks perhaps without much food it has this allure it has this sense of you know being uh, of another world, of being spiritual. And in many ways, we might say that the exercise and dieting craze comes under the guise of health, but is actually about something else. In a sense, it mirrors this ancient world thinking, but the God that is being sought in our modern world is the God of self in the physical form. See, in the scriptures, food is good. And restricting yourself from certain food has no lasting spiritual value. It might be you know, helpful for your health, but of spiritual value, it has no lasting value. Jesus says in, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark that it's not what is outside you that's the problem. It's not what comes in from food. It's what's already in us, within our hearts. So Paul's saying, don't let these false teachers try and micromanage your life by joyless and harsh treatment of the body that minimises Jesus and diminishes your freedom. 
because it looks impressive. Verse 23, it has the appearance of wisdom. You know, look, they're not even drinking coffee or white bread. They must be spiritual. Self-discipline appears to be impressive. But it's not spiritually effective. It won't change you, verse 23. Rigorous self-denial, devoid of Jesus, does not overcome the power of sin. In verse 23, it lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I mean, I can tell you I'm not very godly when I'm hungry. And at least Paul is indicating here that although there's an appearance of wisdom, it has an inability to deal with the sin within. It might look impressive, but it doesn't get to the root of things. You cannot fight the flesh with the flesh. You cannot overcome sin by earthly means, by a diet, by a day, by a ritual. You cannot overcome sin by a vision or an angel. But everything that Jesus has given us is everything that we need to overcome the spiritual forces that are at work, to grow in our godliness. For fighting the flesh, we need spiritual weapons. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus, he gives us what we need. He gives us what we need to fight this spiritual battle. We have died with him and we have been raised with him and he is our life giving head he is sufficient he is all sufficient all satisfying he is an all sufficient and all satisfying savior amen we're going to pray